In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, glory be to Jesus Christ. On this Sunday of the Holy Forefathers of the Lord, we read this long gospel reading of the generations leading up to the birth of Christ, and I would love to preach a very long sermon on this passage because within this genealogy, there are so many stories of redemption that we need to hear. But today I'm going to continue with the series of sermons I have been giving on the Divine Liturgy, and I'll save that other sermon for another day. We've been, we've been looking very carefully at the, at the Divine Liturgy of the Orthodox Church, the way that God has revealed to us how we are to worship Him beginning in the book of Genesis and coming down through the Old Testament and finally into the New Testament. And last week we talked about how everything had come to a head in the Jewish Passover, how the Lord was speaking to His people through the Passover. And the connection between the Passover and the Divine Liturgy. So what was God teaching the nation of Israel through the ritual of the Passover, the shedding of the blood of a lamb, placing the lamb's blood on the doorposts, over the door. What does it all mean? What is accomplished in the sacrificing of animals, the shedding of blood, posting of blood on the doorposts, the burning of animal flesh, and the sprinkling of blood on the Ark of the Covenant, which we'll look at later. What's it all about? What is the meaning of the coming of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God? Why is He called the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world? How is all of this fleshly language fulfilled in Jesus Christ? Well, to, do, to address this question, I decided to consult my limited library of theological books. So I, I was surveying my small bookcase, and I was looking at the titles and the authors, Alexander Schmemann, John Meyendorf, St. John Chrysostom, <clears throat> Athanasius the Great. And then my eyes rested on Father Peter Gilquist, the physical side of being spiritual. Father Peter Gilquist of blessed memory is one of the sweetest men I've ever known. And I can picture him even now in Indianapolis, <clears throat> Indiana, at an EOC conference back in 1979, probably. Evangelical Orthodox Church. He was up there in the front with a guitar in his blue jeans and a, probably a cowboy hat on singing this song. <clears throat> he paid a debt he did not owe, I owe. 
the debt I could not pay. I needed someone to wash my sins away. And now I sing a brand new song. Amazing grace the whole day long. Christ Jesus paid the debt that I could never pay. I'm sure he sang it much better than I did. <clears throat> he had a beautiful voice. Father Peter used to say that he could get on an elevator with somebody on the first floor, and by the time they got to the tenth floor, he would have them converted to Jesus Christ. And his journey to orthodoxy was inspired by his desire to not, be, not only be able to create an emotional response in someone, but be able to bring them into the fullness of the Holy Orthodox Church, the body of Christ, the fullness of him who fills all in all. On Friday of this week, the Miller family celebrated the anniversary of our reception into Holy Orthodoxy. 26th anniversary. And we owe a debt to Father Peter for the role he played in leading us here. May his memory be eternal. He had the kind of personality that just melted a person's heart and opened them up to the love of Jesus Christ. We were so blessed that he spent the last years of his life here in Indiana and even visited our humble parish a number of years ago. He wrote the book that I referenced back in 1979, eight years before the Evangelical Orthodox Church entered into official communion with the Holy Orthodox Church. But you could see that he was on the, ra he was on the road he was on the way to orthodoxy in the book that he wrote. The book was a call to evangelicals to rediscover the physical side of being spiritual, the sacramental life of the traditional orthodox church. So the theological term that we are dealing with when we talk about the Passover and everything that uh, Israel went through in the Old Testament, and we talk about Jesus as the Lamb of God, the theological word that we're looking at is called soteriology. That's a big, big word you can impress your friends with. Soteriology. <clears throat> Comes from two Greek words. Soter, which means Savior, and logos, which means word or study. So soteriology is study of the Savior or study of salvation. The difficulty we run into is that in our Western culture, which we have grown up in, and our minds have been saturated and shaped by Western thought, Western culture, scholasticism, rationalism, which seeks to explain intellectually in great detail something that is a mystery, the mystery of how we are saved by God. 
And when one looks at the myriad of Protestant denominations and all of this fracturing and splintering, we find that 99% of the differences between all these groups and the reason they keep breaking off from each other is they argue about what it means to be saved. What you have to do to be saved. <clears throat> Water baptism, speaking in tongues, predestination, justification, the rapture, on and on and on and on. And it's from this background that we get these theological terms, highfalutin theological terms like justification, predestination, substitutionalism, and so on. The main point of Father Peter's book is that God always uses physical things to teach us the truth and to manifest his love. And he never bypasses our humanity and our free will. And in regard to the connection between the Passover and the Lord's Supper, the primary point is that God saves us through the physical world and allows us to participate in the plan of salvation. The meaning of Christ's incarnation, crucifixion, and resurrection cannot be reduced to the idea that he is satisfying the anger of a just God or that he is paying the penalty for sin. In the Old Testament, God used the physical world in the form of the sacrifice of animals to teach humanity that sin is deadly and there is a price to be paid for it. That's the number one point of how God instructed the children of Israel to worship. There is a price to be paid for sin. Sin is deadly. Sin kills. In evangelical Christianity, there is this idea that liturgy kills. The liturgical churches are dead. There's no life in liturgy. I remember Father Peter often saying, liturgy does not kill. Sin kills. Sin kills. You can be high church or low church. You can be charismatic, you can be fundamentalist. But if you're sinning, you're playing with death. In the New Testament, God enters into this physical world in a totally new way by taking on humanity and joining it to his divine nature in the person of the Son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity. And by the power of his divinity, he destroyed sin, death, and Satan. And in his humanity, he allowed us to participate in this victory. In other words, what God has done for us in saving us cannot be reduced to this courtroom scene where we are all guilty of sin, we're standing in the courtroom 
And there's an angry God up front who's seeking justice because he has been offended. And then we have Jesus Christ comes in and says, I'll take the penalty. I'll die for them. Kill me instead. Shed my blood instead. And let them go. It can't be reduced to that. Although that is part of it. Everything that Christ did in just becoming a human being began the process of healing humanity and of forgiving us of our sins, healing our human nature, our brokenness. It's too great of a mystery to be summarized in some juridical formula. God is not an angry God. That's a human construct that we have to deal with. He does not get angry. But he does demand justice. And he looks for the healing of his people. And so he works through every possible means to bring that about. And he chose to do that through the Incarnation. And he did this, first of all, by receiving from us, through the Blessed Virgin Mary, his human nature. In this wonderful mystery, humanity goes from being the problem to being part of the solution. That's the beautiful thing about the Incarnation. And we have this hymn that we sing during the Nativity season that expresses it so beautifully. What shall we offer to you, O Christ, because you have appeared on earth as a man for our sake? For each of the creatures made by you offers its gifts, the angels their hymn, the heavens the star, the shepherds their wonder, the magi their gifts, the earth the cave, the desert the manger, and we, and we, a virgin mother. O oh God, before all ages, have mercy on us. God allowed us to be part of the solution by letting us offer the very best that we had, the Holy Virgin Mary, the very best that humanity had to offer, the Blessed Virgin Mary. She is our gift to God, which he used for the salvation of mankind. In the Passover, God allowed Israel to participate in the salvation process through the physical means of the blood of the Lamb. Israel had to participate in their own deliverance. They had to kill a lamb. They had to take that blood. They had to place it over their doors. But God was the one who saved them. And this is always the way God works. And so, in the new covenant, God also allows us to participate. In the Lord's Supper, the Holy Eucharist, God allows us to participate in the salvation process 
as we offer up to him simple bread and wine, which he, by the Holy Spirit, transforms into his most precious body and blood. At the first Lord's Supper, Jesus Christ participated in the Passover meal with his twelve, and in that meal he took bread into his holy hands. And in so doing, he gathered up the entire history and teaching of the Old Testament and transformed it with these simple words. Take and eat. This is my body which is broken for you. And he took the wine saying, this is my blood of the new covenant. In every aspect of his human existence and in this simple physical sharing of bread and wine, Christ healed humanity, broke the curse of the law, forgave the sins of the world, and began the deification of man. <clears throat> the deification of man. Athanasius the Great said it this way, God became man so that man might become God. Small g. Gregory of Nazianzus said, That which is not assumed is not healed. And in the Divine Liturgy we say, the priest proclaims, Of thine own and from thine own we offer up to thee in behalf of all and for all. We don't need to understand it or try to explain it, but rather we endeavor to participate in it without hypocrisy. Without hypocrisy. Each of us, we contribute to the church. We keep the lights on. We keep the doors open. We struggle against the passions in our personal lives. We purchase the wine. Perhaps someday we will make our own wine. We bake the bread. We gather together. We offer ourselves to Christ, aware of our sinfulness, brokenness, and helplessness. He offers salvation. We actively participate in the reception of it. For Christ said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. And finally, we have this short poem from an unknown source. His the words that spake it. His the hands that break it. And what the Lord doth make it, I believe and take it.